All right, well, friends, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, here's what you need to know about this passage just right off the bat. The key theme in this passage is unity, is unity, and the joy that is found in unity. I'm willing to bet, I'm going to make an assumption, I'm willing to bet that many of us know the joy of unity. I don't have to unpack it a lot, right? I could just say somewhere in your life, whether it's the home, whether it's the workplace, whether it's maybe on a, on a sports team, maybe getting a play ready, maybe being in some kind of, of musical symphony, some kind of orchestra, maybe even a band, you know that when there is unity, there is joy. When we are getting stuff done, when we are productive, when we are enjoying each other, it is a thing of joy. I think we also know the flip side, right? We know the flip side. Where? Where there's that fly in the ointment. There's that personality that needs to stand out. That person at work that's more interested in the promotion or a job well done. We know how that can rob joy because it creates disunity. I have jobs, I've had jobs in the army that are like, man, I get to tell my grandkids about this. Working with a special operations unit, getting access to top secret like information. Don't put this on YouTube, right? That should have been cool, should have been fun. Should have been like a really, really like, yes, we're excited to do this. All the boys are excited. So we're going to work with them. Yes, we are. Oh, let's go. But here's the thing. Because someone needed to stand out for a colonel or a general, it made the job just drudgery. Do you know that? Do you know that? Where that person needs to stand out and you're just like, oh, here we go. It robs unity, which robs joy. I'd be willing to bet you'd be like me where you've had some jobs where you are not excited about the task. It might be cleaning a latrine, filling sandbags, not saying you've done that, but menial jobs. Maybe you were assigned at a grocery store to go clean the bathrooms, go bring in the carts on a really cold day, right? Like we've had those jobs we do not like, but the team we do it with, it's just an awesome team. And you're excited to be around them. You know there's gonna be jokes, you know, there's going to be ribbing, right? Like, here we're on the tree fort here. We can make fun of each other, right? We've had that, and we've had unity. And even though the job is just like, ugh, <laughs> there's joy because there's unity and there's fun. That is what is going on in this text this morning. That's what we're going to explore. We're going to apply that to the church. Why? Because as a reminder, by way of reminder, the Philippian church has lost a lot of their joy. They're losing their unity. They've been experiencing a wave of external persecution, a wave of oppression. As people have beat down on them from the outside, you get triggered, you get stressed, right? When you're at a stressful time at work, it's hard to come home and be normal because you're just always on, you're, you're afraid, you're maxed out, you're overwhelmed, right? And little things that used to not bother you now bother you. And stress over here can lead to disunity over here, right? Like, like they've been cracked 
and hammered on the outside, and now they're bickering and fighting and nitpicking on the inside. Paul says we can't have that. No, 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 no. I got to bring you back. You're over here. I need to bring you here. And as we look at this text, we see how much we should value and treasure and pursue and fight for the unity that we already have. Let's hear this in the text. Go with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And it is written to us in love for our good. And it is entirely true. As we look at this concept of unity, there's four things we learned this morning about unity. There's four places we're going to go. There's three that come from the text, and there's one underneath that holds them all together. Here's what we need to see about unity. Here's where we're going. First, we need to see how unity is created. Then we need to see how unity is commanded. After we see how unity is created and commanded, we need to see how unity is cultivated. We need to see how unity is cultivated. And after that, we will see just how costly our unity is. Created, commanded, cultivated, and costly. That's where we're going this morning. Let's look at created. Let's look at how unity is created. How is unity created? The short answer is this. Unity in the church is created as we experience God's love for us. As we experience and feel and know God's love for us, his love is really there. As we feel it, it creates unity. That's what verse one is about. Let's look at verse one. Let's look at verse one first. Look with me at that if in verse one. Do you see the if there? That is not a hypothetical if. That is not the if of possibility. That's not the if of desire. We're gonna really wring the washcloth on this word if. This is not the if of if only my husband would buy me roses. This is not the if of if only my wife would let me watch football. No, this is not what that if is about. This is a hard, concrete if. You can translate that if because or since, because you have known encouragement in Christ, because you have known comfort from his love, because there is participation, fellowship, of the Holy Spirit working in you, working through you, using you, moving you, changing you, growing, because you have known God's affection and God's sympathy. That's what Paul is saying. That's what this if does. Now, why does this if matter? Like We're getting really particular there, aren't we? A little nitpicky. Why? It matters. It matters a lot. Why does it matter? 
Paul is reminding them of the various ways that God has worked in their life, various ways that God has shown his love, that they felt his love, that they have received his love. What Paul is doing is this. He's saying, God has encouraged you, comfort you. You've known his affection. Don't forget those times that God has been present and active in your life. Why? Why? Why is Paul doing this? You see, Paul knows that to rekindle their love for each other, he has to first rekindle their love vertically towards the Lord. That's what we've got to do. That's what it's like for us. Have you known, have you experienced the love of God in your life? Have you had tangible moments where you can point to in your life and you can say, I've known his encouragement. I've known his comfort. I I, I have felt the Holy Spirit working in me, working through me. I have felt God's affection and sympathy for me. Can I tell you a story from Julia and I? Story from our life. I remember when we lost our first child. Our first child was actually a miscarriage. We had been married for something like eight weeks, found out that we were four weeks pregnant. We made some major changes in our life. We had to, we had to shift course on some decisions as to what I was going to do, where we were going to live. Four weeks later, we went to the doctor early in the morning and found out we were losing and had indeed lost the baby. It's sad and it hurts, right? Like after, after I high-five Jesus, talk with him in heaven, my first stop, if I beat Julia to heaven, my first stop is to meet that daughter or to meet that son I never got to hold. But you know what comforted us? You know what comforts us in those times? You know how we know comfort from his love in those times? We know comfort, kind of, kind ish, from our doctor. When we heard and when we learned that 30% of all pregnancies end in a miscarriage in the first trimester, we went, okay, I guess that helps. We're not as alone, unique, stricken as we thought we were. It helped a little bit. You know what helped a lot more? You know what helped a lot more was this, was this. Here's what really, really helped. When we realized, when it dawned on us, Our Father in heaven knows what this is like. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus really died. That means God the Father lost God the Son. Oh, we knew that God was present with us, but when we connected those dots that our Father in heaven is a Father who has lost a Son, we knew that He was present with us and He got it. He understood He was not with us in some Pollyanna, oh, God is with you kind of a way. No, our God is real. Our God knows loss. And, and our God lost his son in a different way than we lost our child. Our God lost his son because he wanted Julia and I and his family so bad. Our God was willing to go through what Julia and I were going through. Because he wanted us in his family that bad. His love runs that deep that he would go through what we were going. That has bite. That travels. That is the rubber meeting the road, is it not, Grace? 
That is a God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That is a Father of all mercy. That's real comfort. And that is a comfort he holds out to all of his children in Jesus Christ. Have you known that? Have you known that love, that encouragement, that affection, that sympathy, that participation, that fellowship? Have you known that comfort? Because if you have, if you have, you get unity automatically. You already know that this builds and brings unity. You already know this sparks unity. Why? Because when you know that from the Lord, when you have experienced his love, it warms you. It warms you. It fills a hollow soul full of fire and it sets our hearts ablaze. And that fire, that warmth, that love, it cannot help but travel. How? How? Here's how. Think of a box of matches. Think of a box of matches. Open the box, take out one, right? Green head, red head, doesn't matter. Strike it down the side. Let's pretend like you got it on the first try, right? It's lit. Take that put it back in the box. What's going to happen, y'all? What's going to happen? It's all going to catch fire. That fire will travel. It will consume, right? And as those other match heads catch fire, will you see 100 or 250 different flames? No. You see one united flame because the fire travels. The warmth of God's love and our real tangible experience of God's love travels. When I have it, I want you to have it. When you have it, you want me to have it. Do you see how that sparks unity? Do you see how that creates a movement towards each other? Do you see how that creates a foreness for each other? Do you see how gospel blessings, gospel love creates and sparks unity. When you see that, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Let's get practical. Let's get practical. Can I say this? Take a moment, look around the room. I know it's cheesy. Look around the room. No, really, look, look, look. I see y'all looking at me. Thank you. All right. Look around the room. Can we commit? Can we commit Can we commit to being a church where there are no stray matches laying around? Can we be a church where we're sensitive to the potential stray match that has not yet been lit on fire? Here's what's going to happen in our church in the next two years. In years three to five in a church plant, here's something that almost always happens. You and I will find our group. We'll find our niche. We'll find where we belong. You're already making friends. Some of you already feel like, man, I didn't think I would have a group to belong to so quickly, and that is good. Do not hear what I am not saying. That's good. That's awesome. We need that. It's good to have a group. But if we're not careful, what can happen? I think some of you know where I'm going, right? If we're not careful, what can happen? Our group can go from flexible to what? Yeah, 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 it can crystallize into, and hear me, hear the word, unintentional. Everybody say unintentional. It can crystallize into an unintentional click. Amen? If we're not careful, if we're not looking out for those stray matches, if we always stand in circles at the end of a service, 
We can have stray matches lying around, and to that stray match, it can feel like grace has just become a church that, yeah, they say it's warm, but it's really clicky. We don't want that, do we? What do we do? How do we respond? Just a couple thoughts, a couple suggestions. Here's two. Number one, at the end of a service, please don't stand in a circle. Stand in a U. Why? It tells other people you're welcome. You're coming in. Just something very little and simple. Turn your circle into a U that allows other people to join in. Here's another thing. If you see a stray match, if you go, I don't know if I've met that person. I always see them or I've seen them a couple times or this might be their first time here and I'm so nervous to go meet them, right? Not all of us are like raging extroverts. Not all of us are Jim Ritter, right? <laughs> yeah, we love you, Jim, right? I want to be like Jim when I grow up, right? Can you take your group? Can you just say to your group, hey, y'all, you, you are so much better than me at meeting new people. Would you lead us over there so we can go get coffee with this person and make sure they're not a stray match? Unity is created and we need to respond. Unity is created by the love of God and that propels us and that drives us forward. That's number one. What's number two? If unity is created, we need to see that unity is commanded. We need to see that unity is commanded. Please go with me to verse two. Verse two. Look at that word complete. Paul is not making a suggestion. Paul's not saying, hey, this would be a good idea. Paul is not opening up the suggestion box at the church, pulling it out and saying, try this. Paul is saying, complete. He's giving an order. He's giving a command. This is called an imperative verb because it contains something that we must imperatively do. Here's the thing about Paul. This verse sounds actually kind of weird, unique, for one of Paul's commands. How many of you have heard that saying, you catch more flies with than with? Very good. Does Paul like that saying? No. <laughs> if Paul is writing to the Corinthians, it's get in line. <laughs> if Paul is writing to the Galatians, what are you doing? Stop being so foolish, right? Paul is not scared of rebuke or correction. Paul is not scared to pull out the vinegar. But here in verse 2, we see Paul using honey. He's saying, hey, complete my joy. You got to do this. But come on, see the positive benefit in this. He's saying we have to. We have to have the same mind. We have to have the same love. There has to be full accord, full agreement. It's not an option. And as we look at verse 2, we need to point out, Paul is not talking about the global church He's not talking about grace, getting along with Bethel, getting along with faith, getting along with faith part two, getting along with community or redeemer. That's not what he's talking about here. That's important, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about in here. He's speaking to a local church and commanding them to be unified. Even if we didn't have this verse, it would be a mega theme in the Bible Unity is simply not an option. You cannot overstate the importance of Christian unity in a local church. How so? How so? Let's just go to the Old Testament. Let's see it there. Look with me at Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in what? 
Unity. Let's go to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Well, we're in a family. We're united, right? Has not one God created us? We have one common creator. He owns us. Why then? Watch this. Watch the movement from vertical God to horizontal to each other. Go back to Malachi chapter 2. Not yet. There you go. All right. Why are we faithless to one another? It's not why are we faithless to the Father? Why are we faithless to the Creator? Why are we faithless to one another? If we have the same Father, we have the same Creator. This is a picture of unity. Now go to Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6. Whether it's direct statements in the Bible like the last two, whether it's stories and pictures of the Israelites rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, having a common purpose, a common task in mind. Unity is there throughout all of the Old Testament. Unity is there as we move to the New Testament. We see it in our passage, but Paul also writes about it. I'm going to give you one verse out of eight. This is not the only time Paul writes about it, but go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 where Paul is concerned that the Ephesians, a church that wasn't doing badly or poorly, be united in the Spirit and knowing the bond of peace. It's important to Paul. I could take you to Peter. I could take you to John. I could take you to 1 Peter chapter 3. I could take you to 1 John chapter 4. I could take you to other places. It's like this. If you got to know Jesus, if you hung out with Jesus, you could not help but worry about, be concerned about unity. Did you know there's 13 letters in the New Testament? Did you know there's one sermon, the book of Hebrews? Those 14 books were all written in response to threats to Christian unity. That's why we have a big chunk of our Bible. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a thing we cannot overstate. In fact, go with me to John chapter 17. Let's look at the very end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the last prayer Jesus prayed for us before he went to the cross. Yes, he would go on and pray for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, but this is Jesus' last recorded prayer for you and for me. And what is he praying for? That we would be one. One with the Father, one with Christ, but one with each other. Do you see it throughout the scriptures? It was important enough for Jesus to say, before I go, here's my prayer. Here's kind of like my final request. As we go to our eternal resting place in heaven, look at the picture from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Look at how we're described in heaven. A great multitude without number. We have to be described as one entity, a multitude. But we're composed of what? All nations, all tribes, different races, people, and languages, standing before the throne, all clothed in one clothing, white robes all crying out, not with voices, but with one loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, brothers and sisters, unity is commanded, and unity cannot be overstated. There is more in the Bible on Christian unity and church unity than there is on so many of our other favorite topics. There is more about unity in the Bible than there is on how to raise a family. There is more on unity in the Bible than there is instruction for marriage. There is more in the Bible on unity than on how to relate to your in-laws. 
There is more in the Bible on unity than there is. We're going there on what instruments we should or should not use in musical worship. There is more on Christian unity than there is on church budgets. There is more in the Bible on church unity than whether or not you should build a bigger building or go to two services. There is more in the Bible on church unity than so much that we would expect if you listen to most sermons or most arguments in churches. If I could be a little pointed, if I could be a little pointed, I'm going to say this in love. I hope it's gentle. We're going to make fun of both sides, by the way. Yes, we're going to talk about traditional music and contemporary music, so just brace. Everybody's going to be offended. Everybody gets to laugh at each other, okay? I cannot find a verse in the Bible that says you need correct notes, correct pitch, or correct harmony for God to be worshiped. At the same time, I cannot find a verse in the Bible that says you have to close your eyes, raise your hands, repeat the same verse 25 times to create an ooey-gooey feeling inside of you for God to be worshipped. What I can tell you is this. The Bible will say that if we do not pursue unity, if we do not fight for unity, our God is mocked, and if our God is mocked, we are not worshipping him. He is not worshipped. Our God exists in an amazing unity of three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect unity, perfect love, perfect bond of peace. You as an individual bear his image, but we as the church bear that Trinitarian image to the world. God is so much more concerned with that. Let me ask, of the topics I just walked us through, which one should we hold with a closed hand Which ones should we hold with an open hand? Which ones will we need to change on, reprioritize, shuffle the deck on? Unity cannot be overstated. Our God has done so much to create it. Our God has commanded it. When we see that, when we see that, we cannot be lukewarm about unity. We have to be proactive as individuals, proactive as a church. A person who truly cares about righteousness, holiness, about justice, about what is right before the Lord asks this question. How can I actively promote and protect, develop and defend, grow and guard my local church in unity? But here's the thing. When we see all that our God has done to show his great love to us that creates our unity, when we see that he has commanded it, I know you. I know you. Like, I know we want this, and to a large degree, we have this, right? Like, we have to look down the road and be prepared for threats so we we talk about it, right? We have it. But here's the thing. How do we do it? How do we do it? Practically, like, how does the rubber meet the road? How do we do this? Well, if we've seen that unity is created, if we've seen that unity is commanded, let's look at how unity gets cultivated. Let's make it practical. Let's go to verse 2 again. Let's go to verse 3. Let's go to verse 4. We find answers there. The two answers are simply this. To cultivate unity, we must have harmony and we must have humility. We must live in harmony. We must live in humility. Let's break those down. Go to verse 2. Go to verse 2. Do you see all those sames there? 
same mind, same love, being in full accord, full agreement of one mind. Now, Paul is not saying you have to have uniformity. He is saying you have to have unity. And what he's getting at, the picture he is painting, is one of spiritual harmony. Spiritual harmony. There has to be harmony. There is to be harmony in our worldview, that same mind. There is to be harmony in the way that we treat each other, same love. There is to be harmony in our sense of purpose and what we are to do. That's what full accord means. This verse teaches us that unity means harmony. But what's harmony? What's harmony, Pastor John? Harmony, like, right? Like, you know it when you see it, but it's kind of hard to describe. It's like time. I know it. I need it. I recognize when it's not there. But what is it? Harmony is defined as this. Harmony is defined as a pleasing arrangement of parts. A pleasing arrangement of parts. Are you a musician? Are you a musician? How do we make chords in music? Yeah, I see it back at the back. You have to have a harmony of notes coming together to create a chord, whether on a guitar, on a piano, and I'm sure there's chords in other instruments. I'm just a doofus at music. But here's the thing. If you put the finger on the wrong string, strike the wrong note, you're not going to get the chord right. It's going to sound cacophonous. It's going to, uh, you know, what was that? You will hear the disharmony. Do you like art? Do you like paintings? Do you like sculpture? How do you create harmony in art? There's harmony of lines, right? Like so many paintings, they're either all straight lines or they're all curved lines to create harmony. If you look at Monet, that famous water bridge in Japan, his most famous painting, how is there harmony? There's harmony of color. It's blues and greens. A red, a purple, and orange would look out of place in that painting. It would stand out. Do you work with your hands? Are you, are you a mechanic? Are you a technician? Are you an engineer? You like harmony. That's what your job is about, right? Like making sure the right gear fits in the right spot, the right wires go in the right spot, making sure the system, the factory, the plant, the boiler, the engine, making sure it works right. One little thing can throw off the harmony, and then it doesn't work, right? Harmony is a pleasing arrangement of parts. There's not a part that seeks to be distinct, stand out. It fits within its design purpose. This is what harmony is, and this is true in business, this is true in athletics, this is true in the home, and this is true in the church. Harmony happens when all of the separate parts work together as a single entity. No member is out of place, no part is standing idle. We need harmony. All of us have a role to play. All of us must pitch in together. When we do this, that harmony cultivates unity. That's number one. That's harmony. Number two is humility. Humility. Look at verses three and four. Look at verses three and four. We must have humility to have unity. Look at the first part of verse three and the first part of verse four. Paul paints a negative picture, says, don't do this. In verse 3 and verse 4, don't do anything from selfish ambition. Don't do anything from conceit. Don't look just to your own interests. We cannot do that. We will never have unity if we do that. What does it look like to do these things in a church, right? Like it can be a forceful personality bulldozing other people. That's not the way of Jesus. It can be sometimes when people withhold time, talent, or treasure because they're not going to get their way or they dangle it like a carrot to get you to do what they want to do. No, no. 
That's, that's, that's living for oneself, that's trying to get our way, that is a self-centered approach to things. That is not the way of Jesus Christ. No. So what is it? What is it? Look at the end of verse 3. It's so clear. The answer, the antidote to selfish ambition, to conceit, is humility, is humility. Now, our culture gets very confused about humility. Our culture gets humility wrong. Let me ask you some questions. Does having humility mean having low self-esteem? No. No, it doesn't. Does having humility mean you downplay your strengths and you pretend they're not there, you kick the ground, oh, shucks, that's really not me? That's not humility. That can actually be a form of mock humility, right? A false humility. Does being humble require you to be a doormat? No. No, it doesn't. Does being humble mean that you lack strength? No. No, it does not. Okay, what is humility? What is biblical humility? Look at how verse 3 ends. It's considering others more significant than yourself. Look at how verse 4 reinforces and deepens this definition of biblical humility. It's living for other people. It's living to make their life better. Humility is not so much thinking less about yourself. It's more thinking about yourself less often. That is the essence of humility. Humility is living by taking the spotlight off of me, getting it on to another person, on to Jesus, and connecting those two dots. Can I tell you a story I heard this week from one of you about humility? One of you told me this story about your cousin named Jack, a man named Jack Farmer. Jack lived in Alabama in the 1950s. If I understand it right, Jack was the assistant postmaster in a small town in Alabama. He lived in a town where a lot of people could not read. So what did Jack do? He helped them. He took every Tuesday and every Thursday on his lunch break, and he would read people their mail. Hey, your aunt says hello, your mom says this, your dad says that. Hey, your cousin in the Korean War, this is what's going on, this is what they're writing. If you had a bill, Jack would tell you how much the bill was. He'd tell you who you owed it to. He'd tell you where to go pay your bill at. Jack was a help to people. But there's more to this story. There's more to this story. There was a, there was a large chunk of African Americans in Jack's hometown. This is 1950s Alabama, right? You didn't associate. You didn't mingle. Certain words we would never use were acceptable then. Jack knew Jesus. Jack loved Jesus. Jack cared about Jesus. Jack saw African Americans as image bearers of God. He knew that a black man, a black woman had dignity, had worth, had value. And he knew that because of Jim Crow laws, they were not taught how to read or their schools did not get the best teachers. So many African Americans could not read. When they learned that Jack would read the mail, what did they do? They came to Jack and what did Jack do? He said, yeah, give me your mail. Let me help you. Jack's line got so long that many Wednesdays he had to have the Tuesday line come back to him, and he'd spend his lunch break on Wednesday helping people read their mail, and it didn't matter if you were black. It didn't matter if you were white. What mattered to Jack was people needed the love of Christ, and this is a way he could do it. 
when Jack Farmer died, they had to have two different wakes for him. Black and white were not allowed to come together in Alabama at this time, so they had to have a white wake and a black wake. Why? Because so many African Americans were blessed by Jack and wanted to say goodbye to the man that helped them function and live. Did Jack Farmer live a good life? Oh, yeah. Was Jack Farmer humble? Very. He was very humble. Was Jack Farmer weak? No, never. In 1950s Alabama, if you mingled with African-American people, you were tainted. You were looked down upon. You could lose social standing. To do what Jack Farmer did to live out his Christ-like humility required strength. It required conviction. It required courage. And because Jack had Jesus, he had all three of those in spades. And so Jack made a difference. Did Jack end Jim Crow laws and racism in the South? No. Did he bring full unity? No. But did Jim, like Jesus, who brought Jew and Gentile together, did Jack do something to bring some small measure of unity between white and black? Yes, he did. When you live like Christ, when you live fueled by Christ, you can bring unity. When we do that, we cultivate unity here at Grace. We got a lot of unity. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But when we live with harmony and humility, we cultivate unity. May I give one application point on harmony and humility? One, one, it's this. When we talk, when we make decisions, we will have disagreements. I'm not scared of disagreement and I do not want you to be either. That's cowardly. We need though, we need though, we need to know how to enter into disagreement to make it productive and not destructive. How to bring and add harmony through humility and not hostility. We're going to disagree about some things here at Grace. How do we handle that? Here's a thought, one thought. Harmony and humility means we listen to and we seek to truly understand the other person we disagree with. We've got to make sure we're more about understanding them than being understood. That's harmony. That's humility. We need to be aware and guarded against my need to be right. We need to be aware of, we need to guard against my need to be heard. My need to get my point across. That turns us into verbal bulldozers who do not listen. Let's guard against critiquing something that a person's not really saying. But what do we do? What do we do? Let's ask really good questions. Say, I want to hear you. I can't live out who I am in Jesus, right? The man who walked 33 years in our shoes and understands us, I can't live in him if I don't understand you. So let me ask you some questions. I want to make sure I've got this right. I want you to feel like I'm seeing the world through your eyes here. As we listen, as we do this, as we ask clarifying questions and disagreement, let's try to find out what's really the issue, what's really at stake for the other person. A lot of times what someone wants when they disagree with us is actually a good and godly thing. If you peel back enough layers, you go, oh, you want that? Yes. Oh, I like that. Let's talk about that. And disagreement becomes productive. It becomes redemptive. Oh, friends, when we do this, when we do this, we also have to have an open Bible. 
Too many people come with their preferences and cannot open the Bible and find at least one verse that supports what they want. When we open the Bible, we open our hearts, we open our minds to each other, and we can have productive disagreement that helps us to know God's word better, to go deeper there, and to be more grounded in what I have said or how this other person has sharpened the pencil on me. We have to listen. We have to seek to understand. Amen? Now, that's hard. (laughs) Isn't that hard? And I don't want to do it. (laughs) Right? Anybody? Yeah? Anybody want to join the club? Yeah, I don't always want to do that if I'm honest. What do we do? We know unity is created. We know it's commanded. We know it's got to be cultivated. What do we do when we don't want to do it? That's the trick. We need to see that unity is costly. We need to see that unity is costly. What is the cost of unity? What is the cost of unity? It's this. Before Christmas, before that first Christmas, Jesus Christ lived with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. Go to verse 1. But out of affection for us, they looked upon us and saw there was a disunity. We were separated from them. We were separated from them by our sin and out of affection, out of a desire for us, that same love that comforted my wife and I during our miscarriage, our God already had a plan in place. Go to verse two. So with the same mind, the same love, with full accord, Jesus Christ was sent and Jesus Christ came to this earth as God in the flesh. Look at verse three. Jesus in full humility, in full harmony with his father's plan, became the baby in the manger. God as a baby dependent upon a lady for milk who would do what? Go on to live in unity with his father as he walked this earth by obeying his will perfectly and never sinning. And why did he do that? Why did he do that in verse three? He considered our life without him. He knew what our eternal destiny would be. And so he acted to save us. There's a very real sense in which we could say he considered his life to be more significant than ours. And what happened? Go to verse 4. He went to the cross where his unity with the Father was ripped in two as he hung there forsaken, separated from his Father's love, separated from the love that he knew in heaven, separated from the unity, separated from his Father's words, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, why did Jesus do this? He did this because he looked not to his own interest, his own well-being, but he looked to ours, and he held them higher. And now by faith in this good news, you and I are united to Jesus by faith forever, united to God the Father as his sons and daughters forever. Friends, this is a unity that has been purchased. It was purchased at a high cost. We can never hold it lightly. That right there gives us all the motivation we need to go out and live out the command to be unified, to cherish how it is created, and to strive to cultivate it through harmony and humility. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we love you. We praise you. We praise you for sending your Son into this world. Father, for your Son's going to the cross and knowing disunity with you, that we might know eternal unity together forever with you, and that we may know unity between us. Oh, Father, help us to look to the cross, to look to the gospel, and to cherish the unity that you have given us, Father. May the bond of peace never depart. 
Help us to fight for it, to be proactive, to guard it, but also to grow it, to cultivate it, and to develop it. We love you, Father. We praise you. We ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.